Faculty Voices. Sidney Chalhoub is a Brazilian social historian. He's David and Peggy Rockefeller Professor of History and of African and African American Studies. Before coming to Harvard, he taught for 30 years at the University of Capinas in Brazil. Today, we'll be talking about the first round of elections in Brazil. Welcome, Sydney. Thank you for having me, Joan. Starting off, our audience is probably divided into two parts. There are people who don't know anything about what's going on in Brazil right now. And there are others who are watching every little detail. <laughs> so starting off, for those who don't follow Brazil closely, could you give us a quick summary of what happened in Sunday's elections? The front-runner candidate that has been a front-runner candidate for several months, Lula, a former president of Brazil, as expected, got most of the votes and was very close to winning in the first round of the elections. He got 48.5% of the vote. However, unexpectedly, the candidate who came second was President Bolsonaro, who got 43% of the vote. And the polls had indicated that he would get around 35 to 37%. So there was a surprising performance of President Bolsonaro in relation to what the polls seemed to indicate in the days previous to the election. The other candidates performed poorly. The election was really polarized and they got 3-4% of the vote. And so the second round is on October 30th between former President Lula and the present President Bolsonaro. Were you personally surprised by the results? In the terms of the mark that Lula had, the polls were exactly right. They were estimating Lula to get between 48 and 52%. He got closer to the lower end of this, 48.5. But Bolsonaro's vote was a surprise because the polls indicated otherwise, and because the polls also indicated a strong rejection of his government, with a majority of people evaluating his government in a negative way, and thus suggesting that the polls might be right in relation to his performance, which would still be strong in more than 30%, but it wasn't expectedly strong. And it leaves the second round really open because the margin is small and it gives him actually a chance of winning, which is unexpected and surprising given what the polls have been consistently indicating in the past couple of months. Well, you're a social historian and I'd like to draw on your expertise to tell us if there are any precedents in Brazilian history that can help us interpret the election results. Well, yes, another way of looking at this election and perhaps thinking that there is nothing surprising about it, surprising about the strong performance of the extreme right, is that Brazil is in many ways experiencing a new wave of a conservative reaction that has happened before in its history. For example, 
I usually think that the first reactionary backlash in Brazilian history resulted from the gradual slave emancipation laws. For example, a law of 1871, which freed the children of enslaved women and also allowed for the slaves to go to court to obtain manumission, even though they had to compensate their masters, but they would have the right to manumission irrespective of a master's consent. This law was interpreted as a major problem by the slaveholding class. They thought this would diminish their moral authority over their enslaved labor force. And there was a very important pushback, a backlash that came in many ways. And one of the ways was that as the number of freed people increased in the population because of this gradual emancipation law, and also because Brazil was internationally isolated, was the last country in the West that still have slavery, African slavery. The Congress, the Chamber and the Senate ended up approving a law in January 1881 that established for the first time in the country's history a literacy requirement for voting rights. And in a country which did not have primary education available to people, it actually meant disfranchising all these African Brazilian population that was becoming freed for the first time, or even those who had been freed in previous generations, but were poor and didn't have access to a primary education. So in fact, this is a very important restriction to the rights of people of African descent in Brazil that were becoming freed. And actually, there is a recent dissertation defended in the history department at Harvard by Samantha Payne, who actually shows that some of the North American Southern planters who had emigrated to Brazil after the defeat of the South in American Civil War and stayed there for several years and then returned to the U.S. after Reconstruction ended. And they took back to the U.S. the idea of using literacy requirements as a way of keeping people of African descent away from political rights. The idea that these planters had learned in Brazil were actually deployed in parts of the U.S. South as the strategy to exclude people of African descent of voting rights. And because the slaveholding class thought that the Brazilian monarchy had supported gradual emancipation, they also rebelled against the monarchy, and there was a military coup d'etat that brought about a republican regime beginning in 1889. This is a kind of a reactionary wave that begins in the early 70s and goes on until the 90s in reaction to people having the right to become freed. A second big reactionary moment in Brazilian history was the one that actually begins with the military dictatorship in 1964. Beginning in the late 1940s and in the 1950s, Brazil had a series of labor laws that started being enforced in part by the creation of a special judicial labor justice structure that adjudicated that complaints brought to them by workers against their employers. Again, entrepreneurs and businessmen and their organizations really believed 
that judicial courts, its labor courts, meant a weakening of their authority over their workers and also the recognition of requests for increase in wages and for rights in regards to labor conditions that for them was menacing their businesses, their authority, and so on. And then when Congress start discussing the possibility of extending these labor rights, which previously had been good and effective only for urban workers to the rural areas, then this was really important for the military and sectors of civil society of the Brazilian bourgeoisie, if you want to call it, to get together and have the military coup of 64, which resulted in 20 years of a dictatorship. So I see the present moment in Brazil as a kind of a third wave of a reactionary backlash. The first one was just for people to become free, to get rid of slavery. The second one had to do with the traditional rights of the working class, you know, the urban working class, working industries and factories and workers who acquired or had access to rights in this period, 1940s and 50s and early 60s, and then the coup d'etat came. And now, beginning of the constitution of 1988, Brazil started a period of recognition of a broader array of rights. The constitution allowed for several changes that began with it, like recognition of the right to land by indigenous communities, by communities constituted by former enslaved communities, labor rights that were later approved for domestic workers, labor rights that are recognized for previous categories, especially domestic workers, which are really a large category, especially female, African-Brazilian. Also, the Supreme Court recognized the right of LGBTQ people to marry and to have their unions recognized. And then later, and perhaps very consequentially for the present reactionary wave, was the approval of affirmative action for access to public universities in Brazil, which was also a very aggressive affirmative action policy that began more timidly in the beginning of the 2000s. And then in 2012, after a Supreme Court decision that considered affirmative action legal, constitutionally legal, it gave a legal guarantee, a legal support to a federal law that actually instituted a very important affirmative action law for admission to Brazilian research universities, public universities, in the same year of 2012. And then the backlash begins in 2013, when for the first time, the right, which was not very much in the public scene after the end of the dictatorship in the mid-1980s, back on the streets, protesting against the leftist government, the Workers' Party government. And then that followed by 2014 election, in which the right-wing candidate lost by a small margin, and for the first time in this democratic period after the dictatorship, did not accept electoral results, alleging a fraud that a year later he recognized he never believed it existed. (laughs) And then there was the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in 2016 without any crime or any wrongdoing that could be asserted. And actually, a Brazilian court has recently ruled that the accusations against Duma were not valid. They were dropped. So it's now legally recognized what everybody knew at the time, that these had been fabricated allegations to get Duma out of power. 
And then it continued. Then there is Bolsonaro's election in 2018. And the fact that he still has so much support and has this strong backing and goes to the second round with a chance to eventually succeed in the election, contrary to expectations. It shows a consistent reactionary wave beginning in 2013 and is still going on. We don't know when it's going to end. It's consistent of previous periods in Brazilian history in which a reactionary wave goes on for a decade or two decades sometimes. But despite all these reactionary waves, slavery was extinguished, didn't come back. <laughs> Labor rights are still there in Brazil. I mean, workers have a lot more rights than in the US, for example, in Brazil. Formal rights recognized by the courts, recognized constitutionally protected. And I believe all this new range of rights that resulted from the Constitution of 1988 are not going to be taken back. I don't think the wheels of history will go backwards in that sense. So this reactionary wave will eventually go away despite all the damage that it is causing to the country. But if Brazil is in a reactionary wave, why is Lula showing so strongly? Well, we know there is a resistance by the progressives. There is always a struggle. The question is whether there will be a majority of Brazilian citizens supporting the overcoming of this reactionary wave at this point. And this is also another aspect of the whole situation. Bolsonaro campaigned in the last few months on a Trumpian mode, alleging that the electoral system wasn't trustworthy, saying that the only way he would lose would be if there were electoral fraud. I think he didn't expect himself, maybe, to be so strong in the democratic game. He expected to lose, <laughs> and maybe on the first round. And now he's perhaps hopeful that he can win in the democratic vote, although I have no doubt that he will continue to suggest the possibility of fraud as a justification for an eventual loss. But I think he's probably going to play the democratic game and in this case, it's really played in the sense of using it strategically, because I think an eventual Bolsonaro victory will probably be the end of Brazilian democracy as we have known it since 1988. He's going to find ways of constraining the Supreme Court, changing the rules of the game. He'll have a majority in Congress. The vote yielded a very conservative Chamber of Deputies and also in the Senate. And so he can have a majority there. He may come up with constitutional changes that will trump democracy in ways that will be enduring now. It's a very dangerous moment, even though an eventual Lula's victory will mean, considering who got elected for the chamber and the Senate, Lula will face a lot of difficulties to rule and it will be a difficult government. But it's very important that he wins, because if the presidency is with someone committed to democracy, the threat of this right-wing reactionary wave to become something other than democratic rule will be avoided. And Lula is very experienced, and he will be able to talk with the chamber and the Senate and get enough support not to have a progressive government, as perhaps he wished to do, but he will be able to find a way of governing and do the most important task at this point, which is to preserve democracy in the country. The most important task in Brazil is to 
preserve democracy, you say, but what are some of the other big challenges that Brazil faces? Some of them are challenges that have been there forever, like an incredibly damaging inequality in society in general that has been persistent. However, during the Workers' Party tenure in government, inequality persisted, but there were public policies in place that at least maintained the poor population above a certain level of need that allowed them to have enough to eat and to have enough to go by and keep living. So there are very few people under the poverty line during Lula's years because of public policies. With Bolsonaro, the misery, the extreme poverty is again very much present in the country. And so inequality is a major challenge. Now, there are other challenges, the problem of urban violence. With Bolsonaro, he's been facilitating access to weapons. Brazilian police is increasingly violent, has always been violent, is even more violent now against the slums and the poor population, people of African descent are the ones who are targeted by this. The problem of democratic institutions themselves being under challenge. The way Bolsonaro has been negotiating with the chamber and the Senate has been what they call the secret budget, which is to give away money to congressmen, to senators, in order to guarantee their support without any transparency about where this money is going to. Also, there is a very noticeable damage in public health policies. Just for you to have an idea, Brazil never had a problem with people being skeptical about vaccination. And because Bolsonaro was from the beginning skeptical about COVID, skeptical about COVID vaccines, and supported the use of drugs that were scientifically proven to be ineffective against COVID. He bought all the anti-science package about COVID. And vaccination hesitancy has become an issue in Brazil now, which had never been before. In Brazil, for example, vaccination for childhood diseases in the national campaigns that were run every year usually a target of 95, 98, 97% would be achieved and other children would be vaccinated. In the last couple of years, these numbers, depending on the disease, have gone down to 70%, 60%, or even below the target. So there is a threat there in terms of public health policies of diseases that have been completely under control for decades to return because of the performance of this government. So there is a lot to attend to. Let's suppose that Lula wins and he has to govern with this right-wing Congress, majority conservative Congress and Senate. I think there are some issues for which politicization is not going to be an issue because I doubt, except for Bolsonaro and some of his fanatics, that very many people will be against strengthening the vaccination campaigns and make them effective again to protect children. And the question of inequality, there will be discussions about how to deal with it, but I'm sure there won't be very much opposition about getting people out of a situation which they are experiencing hunger. So there will be ways in which it is possible to put together a government that will 
bring enough support to core policies that will address urgent needs, situations that are really an emergency to get the country out of this four years of damage caused by a completely ineffective government. Let's go back for a minute to October 30th and wrap up. What do you think we can expect now in October 30th? Well, it will be a terrible month. Of course, Bolsonaro will use all the tools at his disposal as the president to continue to use government resources to get electoral advantage. I mean, he has been always a disbeliever in programs to raise the income of poor people. And now he's being enthusiastic about it until December. (laughs) You know, he has approved these payments to the poor to support them, their needs. This is something for the next few months. We don't know what's going to happen next year. He's going to be resorting even more forcefully to cultural wars. And so he'll be not only attacking the Workers' Party and Lula personally for allegedly being uh, corrupt. In the case of Lula, there's no corruption charges against him. He was either being acquitted in several judicial procedures against him, or in the ones in which Moro was the justice, the judicial procedures were considered void and annulled because he was biased against Lula and the thing was politicized. So he's completely clear and there is no corruption charges against him. But Bolsonaro will be repeating that he's corrupt and so on and he's a former prisoner and so on and so forth. And Lula won't reply back to him, I'm the former prisoner, you are the future one because he won't play this game. And it's going to be very hard. It's going to be four weeks of all sorts of attacks in the cultural wars and also using the government resources to forward his candidacy. Now for Lula, I think he has to continue to do what he's been doing, which is to talk with other parties, seek an alliance, especially with the person who was third place with a low number of votes. It's not even 5%, Simone Tabet, but this was because of polarization in the end. Lots of people flocked to one candidate or the other when they saw the polarization so intense. But this was a woman who ran a very decent electoral campaign, and she is a center type of figure, respected by the left, and Lula should reach out to her. This four or five percent of the vote is absolutely decisive. She's given signs that she will support Lula, and this needs to be concluded and achieved. Now, there's the other candidate who got three percent of the vote, Ciro Gomez. This is a more difficult case. He is from a traditional leftist party. I think the party is going to be supporting Lula openly, but I don't know about the candidate who has been taking a right-wing turn, which is really hard to understand, and attacked Lula viciously throughout the whole campaign. So I don't know if he will, at this point, be willing to support Lula in the second round, or if he will, as he did last time, go to Paris or find another way of disappearing from the political scene. Would you dare to do a crystal ball prognosis of what's going to happen on October 30th? Well, you know, Lula still has a significant lead. I mean, he got a 5% lead. This means 6 million votes ahead. If there is not an increase in abstention and all these voters show up again to vote, he needs a little more than a million and a half new votes to achieve the 50% margin. So he's still the front runner. He's still more likely to win than Bolsonaro. 
it's of course at this point much tougher, much more stressful. The challenge is big. I think his major challenge is to maintain his pace, motivated because Sunday was kind of an experience of defeat, not only because he didn't get to the 50% margin, but because Bolsonaro performed much stronger than expected. So there is a low morale on his troops at this point, and Lula has to tear them up somehow. The main thing for Lula's campaign now is to overcome the shock of knowing that more than 50 million Brazilians still support a fascist. Lula has a challenge, which is to tear up his base. This is his first challenge, I think. And together with this, to seek out the available votes that are still there, you know, the ones who went to Simone Tabat and those who went to Ciro Gomes. And if Ciro is not amenable to a conversation, just with his party and try to get as much support as possible, not only to win on October 30th, but also to prepare the government that will be very difficult. We will need to make these alliances to be able to govern without being blocked by the extreme right. You need a good conversation with centrist political forces. So he has these two things ahead of him. I hope he tears up himself. He seemed to be under shock too on Sunday when he gave his interview. He was tried, of course, to show his determination to go on, which I have no doubt he has. But he was, of course, under the impact of what had happened. And I think his main thing now is to cheer up himself, cheer up his base. It's very winnable. He's still the front runner. He's very likely to win more than the other guy. But it's a very tough task. And it's all hands on deck to make this happen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Sidney Chalhoub. He's a Brazilian social historian. He's David and Peggy Rockefeller, professor of history and of African and African-American studies. Thank you for being on Faculty Voices. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.